0: It has been quite an effort to get Dr. Beauchart on the show again because she just had too much going on. I was not aware just how much was actually going on. As we talk about the intervening period, realisation slowly dawns and the dawning doesn't reveal a pretty landscape. Dr. Beauchard is best placed to tell this story and so I will leave the rest to her. There is an interesting side story developing with this podcast, which potentially combines Dr. Boshart's tale with a community in the US called Council Bluffs. I would love for anybody from Council Bluffs who has heard Dr. Boshart's first episode and spread the word of it to their friends to contact me. You have my gratitude. Two and a mic clocking out. Enjoy. and i'm joined by Dr. Boshart, for a second time, and I'm tempted to say by popular demand. Dr. (laughs) Boshart, how are you?
1: I am having a beautiful day. I'm well, thank you.
0: Very good. We are here unseasonably warm in Berlin. Um, I know that in North America, things are not always quite the same, but how's it going there?
1: We had a really beautiful day today. The sun was shining most of the day. We're at like six degrees Celsius. There's no sign of snow, which makes me sad because when I grew up in this town, you know, February was always uh, very white and very snowy and we would toboggan and ice skate and winter ski and uh, I'm sad my daughter isn't able to enjoy those things this winter because there just isn't any snow. So, yeah.
0: Mm. Yep. Yep. Uh, The uh, telltale signs of climate change. I mean, it's (laughs) Berlin at the end of February and uh, 10 o'clock at night. And it's only eight degrees here. Um, People who I know who have been skiing have told me that in the Alps, there's no snow. Um, So, yeah, unfortunately, these uh, these changes are quite consistent, it seems, um, in many places.
1: I don't know if I told you my last time we spoke that my father's side of the family is ancestrally from germany and i do have intentions to go there sometime in my life (laughs) because it would be very interesting
0: if you ever pass by (laughs) berlin let me know um yeah there's a there's at least a coffee with your name on it so um yeah it'll be a pleasure to meet you yeah (laughs) but but since we last spoke as you said a lot has happened um and people may not have heard the first Episode, which uh, I will put a link in uh, into the the notes for this one as well. Uh, do you want to just quickly let people know exactly what it is that you do?
1: Yeah, sure. I am a family physician or general practitioner. I don't know what you call it there uh, by trade. So, a doctor, family doctor by trade, trained uh, in that practice. So I. Um, you know, for the last eight years have been qualified to practice, but my like entire intention of, of going into medicine was to service uh, First Nations or Indigenous is a, a key word these days. <laughs> Don't love the word so much just because it's this blanket statement and all of our nations are so diverse, but uh, the intention of me practicing medicine was to service my first local community First Nations or Anishinaabe community and I didn't realize that um, you know the systems as they exist in Canada aren't quite um, set up to service that community and I think deliberately aren't set up you know they're sort of set up to leave that community out Um, so it's been a very challenging eight years to try to uh, Uh, practice medicine in a good way in that community because there's so many barriers and and uh, oh it has been quite a shit show for lack of a better uh, a better better you know better explanation but what I've come to realize is you know if you are identifying as an indigenous person and you're a doctor you only really have one choice which is assimilate into the current system accept it and, and start practicing and and don't ask questions and don't <laughs> if you want an easy life just do that um which means you probably like you'll you'll spend the majority of your practice seeing non-indigenous people and you might come across some indigenous people but but uh i'm not happy with that so i basically refused since i started to to do that Um. And so the whole journey has just been trying to, A, find a space that exists where First Nations are practicing healthcare, like sort of in a sovereign way or independent way, where I can learn and work, uh, which I haven't found yet, (laughs) um, or create my own space, (laughs) um, which I actually recently did. And so I can share a little bit about that. where we are now um yeah and then all the layers of that right attempting to deliver health care to any human being uh is like a gigantic you know it's not just about a cough or a wound or a blood pressure like it's it's fully integrates everything about that person mentally emotionally spiritually physically Socially, um, and so family practice is really one where like you get that opportunity to sort of look at someone, and get to know them and know their whole context and how we can sort of uh, assist in their all of those domains to get them to to a better quality of life or a you know more enjoyable state. You know that's the whole point in my in my eyes. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And and just so that people know, the last time that we spoke, you also mentioned that you you kind of took your requests, as it were, to, to the highest medical authority within the region. Um, It's not that you you kind of uh, sat back and, you know, gossiped with some of your patients. <laughs> oh, this is not very good, blah, blah, blah. Um right but you've been very active in trying to get um, not only funding, um, but also develop awareness um, of, of some of the issues which are faced by First Nations communities where you are, um, and also to to try to get support. And I mean, to be fair, you've also mentioned that there have been other doctors that have come along the journey with you too. So it's not that you are completely alone in this, um, but as you say, the system itself is not there for you to provide the kind of healthcare that you want for your community. I believe that was where we were when we spoke last time.
1: Yes. Yeah. So that sort of remains the truth. And, um, as I, it's like every, with every chapter of my life, it's like new learning about how it doesn't work. And like, I appreciate that learning because then, you know, through, through knowing what doesn't work, then we can maybe understand better what will work. But, I'm sort of tired of having experiences and having to see what doesn't work over and over. So, so, you know, I set off early this year in this quest to like, well, what does it look like? How does it work? What is, you know, what is first nation or indigenous healthcare? What does that look like from that uh, worldview? Right. Because like I live in these two worldviews, the like the more mainstream like settler sort of, colonial worldview and then and then the First Nation or Anishinaabe and I use all these words because you know First Nation Anishinaabe worldview is how we would say it as Anishinaabe people but the worldviews are just totally opposite right um so then I had to just ask myself well everyone said well what does it look like right and I'm like everyone wants an answer I don't really know but All I know is that, you know, it starts with relationships, building relationships with my patients and they they sort of lead how it looks. So if you're really centering on patient care and they truly are at the center of that, then we adapt like to meet their needs rather than them having to adapt to the system. Right. So June 21st, which I don't know in your area, if you celebrate in any way, but in our neck of the woods, June 21st is um, National Solidarity Day or Indigenous People's Day the government has called it. And um, it's also like the solstice. Um, But on that day, I met a man at a gathering who is from Waquemekong. Uh, Wiki with First Nation. And he just happened to be standing with a friend of mine uh, at the gathering. It was like a powwow type gathering. So I so I walked up and introduced myself because he was a friend of mine. And we started chatting. And it turns out that this man was a um, executive director of a Social service sort of agency in the urban area for First Nations people, Um, and and through that sort of fateful meeting, uh, we got chatting. We had several meetings after that, uh, and and he and I realized that our sort of um, our goals were aligned in terms of healthcare, and but that agency didn't have a healthcare branch. It was all like housing and Anti-human trafficking, home oh yeah, homelessness—like they were supporting a lot of urban First Nation folks in the city in those ways—but they didn't, ha- they did not have healthcare, and and he was noticing that uh, that was the big uh, like like block in the road for people to to actually get well and like move forward is like they didn't have that healthcare piece, so. Uh, In that good way, in that Anishinaabe way, he said, okay, Dr. Beauchart, I'm going to give you a budget and I'm going to trust you that you know what our people need and you know what you're doing and I'm going to hand it to you and I just want you to build, I just want you to make a team and get what you need and see our people in this downtown urban setting And it was just the most terrifying few months because I, you know, I've always just walked into a clinic and like everything's there. You get your space, you get your computer, you just start seeing people and there's all these things already established. Right. Um, So it was pretty terrifying, but um, I had enough of a budget for me to for for myself to pay myself a salary for uh, 16 hours a week. Uh, and then I hired a nurse for sixteen hours, and I hired a full- time medical administrative staff. We got like all of our electronics, like computers, laptops, phones, through the organization. Um, we set up everything from the back end to the front end, uh, and we were actually operating out of us out of a shelter um, downtown and uh, And it was like, really amazing because how it works is very simple like someone's referred to you usually who's staying at the shelter for any reason you meet that person and you just start a journey with them and like basically whatever their needs were we met them um I happen to just be the kind of person that doesn't mind sharing my Number with all of the staff at the shelter, so I was pretty much on call uh as needed uh and you know very very complex very very complex uh medical needs um yeah, some of the individuals that I met when we first started, like I didn't know if they would live <laughs> like the next day, I was often going to bed thinking, I don't know if they're gonna make it, you know Uh, because they had just such severe addictions and mental health and, like, layered on top of chronic diseases that weren't being managed um, or infections in their wounds. And the emergency room would just kick them out because of behavior problems. So, like, they just had nowhere uh, to go other than me. So it was quite terrifying in the beginning. but, um, But the beautiful thing is, because we show up and we... We did it in that good way. You know, we had tea and coffee always going, offering people tea and coffee. It was kind of, our space almost looked like a living room. (laughs) Uh, You know, we could visit. Um, We did have private space for like anything private, of course, but uh, it was just that relationship building, getting to know these people, letting them sort of lead the healthcare, uh, but being able to sort of break everything down. and really get down to what what we needed to do. And we were able to move so many people along this spectrum of like, you know, acutely psychotic, borderline metabolically, so physical decompensation, like, to to some sort of stability, within like, two months. (laughs) Um, And some people were even housed, we got their housing application, we got them housed, we got them stable, like, uh, it it was beautiful and we were doing great and then, and then what happened? The the man who I spoke of, who I met on that fateful day, was let go by the organization. And this is a nonprofit, so he was the executive director. But there's a board, I guess, that sits at that. So the board let him go for unknown reasons. And as as soon as he was gone. I started to realize that, like, I was next (laughs) Uh, because there was a lot of interference with my work. Um, Like that top down sort of you can't do this, you can't do this. Uh, And then eventually it was the board has decided that you guys can't provide health care here anymore. And we actually just got terminated all of us last week, and we're going to clean the clinic out tomorrow. (laughs) So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, oh, uh, that's
0: this, that's terrible. Um, Isn't
1: it?
0: yeah, I'm really sorry it's to bad. hear that, Dr. Boshot. I imagine that's also a, a, an emotional bag to carry as well. And uh, I, I'm sure you're emotionally connected to the people that would come in there and who are dependent upon your doors oh being open.
1: Yes, it's it's been like I knew it was coming, I saw it coming before it happened so I was more prepared but so I've been through the whole emotion of it and um you know the reasons behind the decision are or the reasons that were communicated to me and the board didn't communicate to me at all this entire journey I don't even know who they are um but they would send the directors of the organization to talk to me. Um, But at the end of the day, like they did not approach me on one occasion to ask if they had any concerns, I wasn't asked to address it. So they basically just sat in these meetings with all these worries and fears about standards of care, insurance, um, liability, health information privacy, which are reasonable concerns, fair, like, but I had all of that covered, like, but they didn't ask me. So I don't know. At the end of the day, if they really wanted us, they would have asked, I could have clarified and it would have been okay. But I think those were just all like, excuses to just shut us all down because they just didn't want to deal with it that but but honestly I don't know if I'll never really know the reason
0: (laughs) um I mean has this story not received any local media attention I, I I find it odd that such a service can be provided um and then for it to be taken away and nothing reported that sounds equally shocking in many ways
1: Yeah I I don't even know you know not a lot of people I guess in a broader context like knew what we were doing in there. Um, It was really only the staff and us and our patients that some other physicians that I would refer to or we would share knew that I was there Um, but I think it just came and went so quickly that there wasn't any real there wasn't really any media interest or pickup. I did get asked to do an interview for CBC Radio in Canada uh, on this show called White Coat, Black Art or I think that's how or Black Coat White Art. I don't remember, <laughs> whatever makes the most sense. Uh, about the homelessness issue and the health and homelessness that we were providing in that space. And but then uh I said sure I'll do that interview but then I never heard anything back. And uh and, and and I'll share like this is all my like feeling and opinion and it could totally be off base. But I always have these like deep underlying sort of like knowings uh that somehow it's political and And the politics of Indigenous health are interesting in this region because there is, and I don't know if I mentioned this, there's like one sort of provincial body that the province funnels all its money to uh, as the sort of Indigenous health service provider. Um, That agency uh, is very much local here and they have a clinic uh, in the city where I was working and uh and I have some suspicion that uh at that board level, that agency that does do all of the indigenous health care, I think said you guys should get out of healthcare because we're the ones that do the health care for the indigenous people. You need to shut her down, right? And I know that's like everyone says, no, no, that's not it, but like I I know that there's a lot of people invested in that other model that has been in this area for 25 years. There's a lot of money going into that model. Um, and it does benefit the communities to some capacity. But but to be honest, when I was in that space working with those people, all those people, or most of them, were patients of that model. <laughs> right? But they couldn't get access in the way that they needed. And it hadn't been helpful to that point. Um, You know, because it is so much like, we're open 830 to 430. And when you call, it's like a recorded voice, press this button, press this button, I can't get through to anybody, or, you know, I can't make it to my appointment. And you get, you know, it's that whole model that is more common that the colonial health model it doesn't work for people in certain kinds of situations so um, yeah and and the physicians that work with them are not first nations people i don't know how well they understand or how well they interact i know they do their best to train their staff uh, but nothing is better than uh, lived experience right it's like training someone is I don't know. You can try, but <laughs> you know, the worldview and the way we relate to people, I don't think it can be trained. So it's just tough. It's a and uh so anyway. So right now where am I at? I'm going to clean out my clinic tomorrow with the nurse. And um we have no longer have a space to practice out of. Uh, But I guess the silver lining is that we do have other um, partnerships with health care organizations and providers locally who know all of this and want to help uh, and want to get us a space and want to continue the work. So it's just how that's going to come together. I I don't quite know at this moment.
0: (laughs) Uh, In Europe, obviously, there are... A number of different health care solutions, um, depending on which country you live in. Uh, the, the UK rather famously has this organisation called the National Health Service, which up until at least recently, uh, even now, is, is supposed to be able to provide free health care to anybody who qualifies as um, either a British citizen or a resident within the UK. Um, and, and they would receive... Medical treatment, no questions asked, essentially. Um, now that is kind of being torn apart by the current conservative government, but that's again the uh, politics and so on. Uh, but people always compare that kind of system with essentially what exists in the USA. I, I have, I am completely ignorant as to the level of healthcare provision provided by. Um, Canadian services if indeed you don't have private health care. Um, can you give us a bit of a, a kind of explanation as to what kind of service there is to your your normal as um, suppose, any person that walks in off the street in a major uh, Canadian city and then perhaps compare that to the, the experience that First Nations people may uh, indeed get if they don't reside within that kind of urban environment?
1: Yeah, so yeah, so, I mean, Canada is touted as having this great public health. And it is true to some extent. So, you know, if you're a Canadian citizen and you have a health card, uh, what that means is that you have you should have access in an emergency situation. You can go to one of the hospitals and seek out care and you'll be cared for. And if, as long as your OHIP card is active, they foot the bill for for everything. Um, now, in terms of like pharmaceuticals or medication prescriptions, uh, those things aren't covered by publicly funded programs unless you're above a certain age uh, or you qualify for disability or you're on Ontario Works, like you could get some drug coverage. Um, but if you're, you know, a working person, um, you you pay for all your own drugs or you pay for it's covered through work work insurances. Um, the public system uh, doesn't normally cover things like extended health care unless you have insurance. So like massages or physiotherapy or uh, special devices. Uh, are all sort of extra that you'd have to c- pay out of pocket. Um, now, in a perfect world, or maybe when I was a kid, it seemed like it was that way. Family medicine, same thing. Your family physician like, will pretty much provide all the services you need at no cost. Although things like, there are things that aren't covered, which will come out of pocket and things like letters for school or work. Um, Any kind of paperwork you need completed sometimes is out of pocket or certain treatments aren't covered by OHIP. Like if you have skin tags or something they consider cosmetic, uh, you have to pay out of pocket for. But currently in Canada, we have a huge problem with family medicine. It is very difficult to find a family doctor a lot of people are uh, without family doctors right now, which, of course, overwhelms the emergency room systems. Um, the hospital system is quite overwhelmed right now. There just aren't enough providers to meet the demands of the population currently. Um, and private healthcare does exist in Canada, even though as a country, I think we try to fight against it. But, but there are private clinics popping up like particularly like nurse practitioner led private clinics so not physicians but nurse practitioners are like registered nurses that do like an extra year or two of training and they are called nurse practitioners and they can write prescriptions and order tests and they can do at least all of the administrative things that physicians can do so i think the difference you know first nations people have access to all of that too it's not that we don't if if you can get there and you can walk in <laughs> technically you are uh eligible for all of that just like everybody else uh and and, and a lot of the barriers are um like Obviously, there aren't any acute care or hospitals or anything in First Nations communities. So, like, if you want to get to one, you have to call the ambulance or you have to have a car or you have to have enough money for a cab or you got to have a family member or someone to get you to the hospital, eh? which some people inherently think should be simple, but... know sometimes people don't even have a landline or a cell phone and the cellular service in the first nations is terrible Um, so it becomes like these other kinds of barriers that most people generally don't have and then once you walk into the space uh, there's all the barriers around racism if you look outwardly like a first nations or an indigenous person uh, you might be treated like with less respect, you might not be believed if you're having a problem, uh, you could be dismissed, uh, and basically not get the standard of care, because, you know, Canada has spent so much time and such a long time, like ingraining into people's heads, hearts and minds that we are not human beings, right, or we don't deserve the same. and like. How do they do that? They left out the entire history of what actually happened, right? They leave us out of their history books and public schools. Um, Like they talk about this land like it only started when Canada started, you know? And and they talk about us as people that were conquered and people that struggle and people that are sort of barely hanging on to life. They don't talk about us in a way that makes others feel like like we're deserving. You know, so it's like the unwritten stuff that most people suffer. Um, and, And one of the things I've come to realize and and this applies to everybody, it's like if you are in a bathroom by yourself and you and you don't wash your hands because no one's watching, it's not, you know, whatever. And it's like that same mentality um, because there is no safeguards for First Nations people in any area of society, it's like there's no accountability. So, like if a if an emergency doctor says, "Oh, there's nothing wrong with you, go home," he knows inherently that he'll never be held accountable if he misses something, because the likelihood of that person having the finances or the power or the support to come back and make a fuss is quite small um because first nations people are often so much in their own chaos of life that that you know they just don't have the resources to like hold people accountable in hospitals or you know so and I I hate to say that but it's that's what I've been seeing when I in my practice is that uh if you feel like someone is disposable or that you don't have to be accountable, your care isn't gonna be as good. Uh, and there's no way to measure that, right? There's no way to measure those things. But that is what happens to our, our community members like day in, day out in all kinds of systems, but mostly the healthcare system, which is where they suffer a lot of harm. And, um, and, and like, I have real examples of this. When I was in the shelter, um, there was a gentleman staying there who was like very unwell. He was complaining of a headache. Um, he was sort of just like laying on the floor. I, I kept getting reports from the staff that like something was wrong. He was complaining of a headache and uh, he ended up w- walking over to the emergency department being seen getting sent home, back to the shelter, the following day. Um, So I walk into the shelter and I think, Oh, good, he was assessed. The doctor saw him, I'm sure everything was taken care of. And I assumed that my physician colleague in the emerge did the right thing and that this guy was taken care of and I didn't even go check on him because I because he had an interaction there. A few hours later, um, I like log, so I have access to log into to the emergency, like all of the hospital systems locally and read reports. So I read his report from the emergency room um, and, and the report just said, you know, so-and-so is here complaining of a headache. Uh, you know, I checked him over, he looks fine. He really thinks he has head lice, but I don't see any head lice. But, you know, I'll give him some head lice treatment just to make him feel better because he's and I'll give him an antibiotic just to make him feel better. And he'll feel better if I do that. And he you know, and that's what the report said. Uh, and then a few hours later, one of the workers from the shelter came to get me. Dr. Boshar, you have to see this. You have to come see this. And I was like, see what? You know, and I went to see this gentleman and it was like the worst head lice infection I've ever seen in my whole life like his it was like moving there were so many of them thousands and thousands and not only that but once we were able to cut all his hair off he had abscesses all over his scalp his lymph nodes in the back of his neck were golf balls because he had such a bad infection and I thought I was just so disappointed in that moment because here there's this documented legal document visit that says verbatim, he does not have, I do not see any head lice. He does not have head lice. He has no infection and he can be discharged. (laughs) Um,
0: Wow. Wow. And and what kind of distance was this uh, diagnosis provided by? As in, did they even see the guy? Were they in the same room?
1: I asked him, I said, did they, he wears a toque all the time to cover his head. Cause he's obviously had this for months and months and months and months and months. I said, did he take your hat off? He said, I think he did. I said, did he even look at your head? He said, I don't know. I think so. But I could tell he didn't want, I could tell he really didn't want to be there and he didn't really want to help me. And I was like, you know, so I don't know why these things happen in our systems and you know it took me actually I called the emergency room and I was just gonna I was gonna have some words with this physician <laughs> but I didn't cuz I I said no just like take a deep breath do what the patient needs right I took care of the patient and and that and that took a lot for him like we couldn't shave his head because it was so infected we could we could cut the hair as short as we could. We couldn't put head lice cream on because his skin was all open. Um, like it was just a process. It took like a week or two to get him treated. And we had to go with oral medications for head lice, which you don't really hear of, but it exists, um, which basically just puts the medicine in the bloodstream so that the lice then eat the blood and die <laughs> instead of topically. Um so yeah, so I've never looped back to this doctor, but I still have that report and I took photos and I, I intend my intention is one day to ask this man about this interaction, you know, when once all of my emotions around it settle down <laughs> because uh because like I know people don't change if they don't see us as human beings and they don't want to interact with us and That's just going to make him more angry if I attack him about it. But, you know, that is just one example of many that I see when it comes to First Nations people, especially those who are in socially difficult circumstances like homeless or struggling with addictions. Like the more layers, the worse they're treated by the health system. That's all it is, you know.
0: Oh, i i'm so interested in reading your book um which will hopefully come out which talks about all of these things um because i i i i am nowhere near where you are i have no idea of the kind of situation that you and first nations people face on a daily basis and i'm, I'm sitting here i'm horrified as you're telling your story head in hand scenario um I mean, that goes completely against the Hippocratic oath in every way.
1: Absolutely, um,
0: yeah. I, I, I mean, why do these people qualify to to provide healthcare if they don't give a damn about the people they're supposed to be serving? I, I don't understand that at all. Um, and, and as for them treating people as though they're not even same level human beings, that the only person there who is not the same level human being is a doctor. Um, That's
1: right. I, yeah, it's a, it's a strange, healthcare is a strange monster. And, uh, and, uh, like on a personal anecdote, I myself sought out emergency care in the last few weeks. Um, and even me be, I told them I was a physician and I, I feel like somehow if I just say that I'll, At least I'll feel like I'm safe. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it was still like, I would say pretty poor. But, you know, I think that the systems are, this is what everyone just keeps saying. We don't have enough staff. There's too many patients. Everyone's burnt out. So you are just like a number in, the, in a room. Like they don't really even have the emotional or, or capacity to see you as a person because they just can't because they're so they're just too busy and too drained. And, and that is how it felt for me too. I just felt like, I just felt like everything around me was just like, I was just alone, right. In this busy place where everyone is just, like on their way to the next thing uh you know and you're kind of pushed around and oh go wait here and go wait here and and then bye <laughs> but you know there wasn't any there was one individual in the triage that I actually felt like connected to me or cared so I was grateful for that one that one person Um, And I am like a well-educated, like, well-dressed, like, groomed doctor, and even I felt like that I wasn't important. So I can only imagine how it feels when you visibly, you know, have a visible visible minority or you're, you know, not well-groomed or not well-dressed or homeless or, you know, whatever. It's just going to be that much worse, I feel, so... People people are living in boxes, and I mean, like not literal boxes, but a lot of the people providing the service are—they live in a world that's so sheltered, and and they, you know, like they—I don't know—they just—they can't have compassion or empathy anymore for for others. I just don't get it. But
0: a few years ago, I, I recall some of the horrors came out of uh some areas of canada where they had discovered these mass graves of mm. children around these schools that had been created supposedly to educate first nations people but essentially they they just carried out some kind of mini genocide on you know on these particular communities um and then they cancelled canada day uh the whole country was horrified but when I hear these kinds of stories coming out, then, okay, so nothing changed. Okay. We canceled Canada day. That's it. You know, move move on next up. And so, um, I I don't get it. I mean,
1: I mean, what do you need to do? In my, like, this is again, my opinion, but like Canada continues to be guilty of genocide towards first nations. And, in the way that, like, if you look at what genocide is and all of the aspects of genocide, it's ongoing through removal of children from their families through not allowing the basic necessities, right? Housing, clean water, access to food. So like, they're still doing it, Uh, you know, incarceration rates of indigenous First Nations Women and men are through the roof, so like all the these different systems continue to sort of commit that, but it's not outright they're not outright like standing us up and shooting us <laughs> so and they also propagate a narrative like they're giving us everything, like all you know like they're the the overall narrative in the country is that like. Indigenous First Nations people get everything handed to them. You know, the government's always throwing them money, but they just mismanage it. And this is what everyone just believes who doesn't actually know First Nation people. (laughs) Um, So I spend a lot of time sitting in groups with other people who have no experience with First Nations. And I just tell stories. Uh, of real real stories of my own. Uh, and and they just are all like in awe. They just don't know, they can't comprehend. It's just, you, you don't walk in those shoes until you walk in those shoes or you listen to somebody who has, um, you know. And I think it's not coincidental that like I'm an indigenous doctor and I still can't be one with my community after eight years. <laughs> like that's not a coincidence it's not for lack of trying it's because like in my deep I believe that like the overlying system still wants us to be dead and dying and still wants us not to succeed and still operates in that way in all of these little systems of minutiae and we're trying really hard to fight all of that uh right now in all like education justice social like health housing like we're trying to find solutions and we're trying to find allies in the work (laughs) to turn it around right it's slowly happening it's just very slow
0: (laughs) i was gonna say i also i mean referring back to your twitter page there is also reference to you quoted You said, stay aware, Gilbert Chichu, the purpose of the Indian Act is to colonise Indian governance. Uh, Canada will keep trying to convert First Nations via tactics that starve them financially until the same policies with different titles trick them into giving up their treaties for municipalities. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And that's very much in keeping with with what you're saying. If I were not following you, I would not have known anything about this. But also, also, I live you know, in a different continent. Is there really no interest outside of the immediate community where people are are, are taking this story up, uh, talking about it, developing awareness of it, trying to help, trying to show their uh, their understanding and compassion? Is there nothing there outside of the First Nations community immediately to try to, to do something?
1: There is. It's just, we're so recent from the you know, like 500 years of active genocide, right? We're just coming out of that. We're not out of it. It's still happening in a different way. I always have so much compassion for my own First Nations community because we are the descendants of all of that trauma. And, you know, my own mother went to residential school, right? So a lot of us, and I, I don't like to speak for everyone, but I'll just say I... So me sitting here today in this chair, in order for me to be well enough to challenge all of this at political levels, right, like first I have to be in a situation where I have all the things I need, like I have to have water and safety and food and security and like, a relatively stable family life and um, and have learned my rights, right? And have understood them at all those levels, uh, you know, and then I have to take all of that and enact it into change. And there are people out there that are doing this in that way, but there's still lots of our community members, relatives of mine, family, friends, like who still are in their own internal struggles, like they're just trying to survive they're in survival mode, right? When you're in survival mode, there's not, you're not doing that high level change. You can, some of it can be violent resistance, right? <laughs> but well, thankfully we don't operate that way as as a people, um, obviously unless threatened with violence, but it's not very difficult to like confuse an entire nation with like paperwork and legal jargon and get them to sign over their rights and say, oh, we're going to give you all kinds of money to support your community, right? Like when people are in that and they're just desperate for resources, like governments can take advantage. So unfortunately that is happening actively. And I, hope, I pray about that every day because at the end of the day, we, uh, you know, everything on paper, you know, treaties and documents are what the colonial system relies on, right? So I'm hoping not everyone signs all of our rights away. But and, and to your point, on the other side of things, there are settlers here in Canada, immigrants here in Canada, displaced people here in Canada, who are those good allies who are who want to improve things for our communities. Uh, But we're like, I feel like we're pretty early in that stage. Like they're just starting to try to understand like what an ally is and what that looks like. Because uh, I don't think I have actually met somebody yet who like embodies that. There's a lot of great people that are curious. They want to understand and they want to know what to do to help. But then then they realize, uh oh, if I action this to help First Nations, like I'm going to face consequences in my own personal life, you know, from the system or from those around me that don't. So it's like being an ally is not easy because you can face your own losses and you and it's about power. Right. You have to give up some of your power. And yeah, that's a tough place, but they're out there
0: they are out there i i don't want to suggest something that you've already done and uh, thereby you know make out that i'm such a fountain of knowledge and so on but i mean workshops uh, engagement events uh, and so on trying to educate local people who how can they become a supporter and, and so on are these activities i imagine are taking place um are they developing in a certain direction which you could say okay we can see the success of these things or is there some other kind of input that perhaps needs to occur?
1: It's a good question. I, for a long time, uh, there's been like what we call, I think it was first called, I don't know what it was called, Indigenous cultural safety training or Aboriginal cultural humility training. There's a, a lot of like organized organizations or institutions what they have been doing is building this curriculum for their staff people to go through that you know teaches the true history of the country, uh, you know, from from contact and all of the treaties and so all the historical stuff, uh, current sort of state of affairs. I don't know, though. I don't know if they're successful. I think obviously it's that background is, it depends how you interact with the material, right? In anything. Uh, You know, some people, it's like, did they really go through the material? Did they just press play and walk away? I don't know. <laughs> Was there any active engagement or discussions when they learned all of this? Um, So I, I I think at at the least, those kinds of things at least can start someone down their path to understanding. So those courses and things are available in all kinds of different spaces and places. Uh, Different universities offer courses. uh, Different organizations offer free courses. To just do the like didactic learning about these things, uh, historically speaking, and systemically speaking for me like the best learning is like that real human interaction like relationship building with a person that comes from these communities so um and that's real action right it's uh I can sit in a room and give a lecture to 200 physicians and offer myself as a Coffee dater, if you really have nobody in your life who's from a First Nation community locally ever, if you're if the only person you interact with as a First Nation person is your patient, like that's a problem because then it's still a power differential. So, like, I it has to be real, tangible relationships with people for you to learn from them, I think. So, you know, the more we can get our own people to uh, get into healthcare spaces and justice spaces and be those equal colleagues, right? Um, It's going to take a lot of time, I realize that, but like relationships do take time, they take time, they take effort, they take dedication and and that really is the true relationship building. Like you have to go into the communities, you have to meet the people, you have to meet them again and again and again. And, and find someone that, that can teach you and be willing to learn and listen and, and say maybe this is important, right?
0: Yeah, Dr. Beauchat, you've been very generous with um, your muted criticisms of some of the people, uh, some of your colleagues in the medical profession um i i don't i don't believe that all of them deserve that generosity but your next steps sadly uh you're going to have to um empty out the the shelter where from where you're operating do you have plans already in place for what comes thereafter um i presume you need some time to gather your thoughts um perhaps bring a, a circle of people together who are willing to undertake some positive action. Do you have some ideas in that direction?
1: Oh yeah, I do. Uh, the great thing about the fact that I've been sharing this in like large groups is that there's lots of people who have had great suggestions and uh, and I know they're all out there sort of like waiting for me to say like what, what I need, right? <laughs> uh, next steps for me is like really enacting that healthcare sovereignty. And according to the United Nations, Indigenous individuals, and I posted this on my Twitter feed and I reposted it. So healthcare sovereignty means that we should have uh, decision making and processes that service our communities, right? So healthcare service delivery, we should be able to choose how that looks and how it operates and as a sovereign nation so yeah so I uh am hoping and like you know prayers have gone out and it's like you know there's a there's an acre of land in my own first nation that is possibly coming to me very soon um and it all starts there right you need land and land is why we've in this problem in the first place right so If I can have a piece of land to just start establishing a small space uh, that's in my First Nation and protected by all of that sort of interference, (laughs) you know, and it can just be uh, my space and I make the decisions, then I think we could get somewhere. And the beautiful thing is, you know, there's already partners at sort of tertiary hospital levels, leadership in hospitals locally, the local Ontario health teams, all the leadership levels are like what do you need, right? And so if I can just get this land, then I can say I'll get a business plan together with all my expenses and and I'll say, "Well, here is what I need. <laughs> what part of it can you help out with?" right? Because at the end of the day, it's gonna keep my community members out of your emergency rooms. It's gonna keep them out of your hospital beds, you know, and it's going to build the health of our community. Uh, so it's worth it, right? It's worth it. And they all know that. So I'm excited for the next step. And I'm just, you know, in our way, we just, I was told and I do truly believe like all this is, hap- is going to happen. It's just a matter of when and I just have to, you know, be patient and endlessly patient. (laughs) uh, I always say it's like a lifelong dream, right? So, you know, by the end of my days on this earth, if I will have seen this happen and function and help the community, like I will have like that is my purpose. So I'll be happy. And I'm, you know, I'm still young. So we we got lots of time. And it, and if for some reason my life is not as long as I think it's going to be, like I hope someone will take it over for, you know, move it forward, and and so, yeah.
0: Doctor Bosha, this fan of yours uh, is uh, hopeful that you will um, live way beyond living out that dream. <laughs> yeah, I um, hope so. Yeah. Yeah. And if other people have ideas um, or simply want to reach out and uh, speak with you or communicate with you, I will add your uh, Twitter handle in
1: in the notes
0: as well. Yeah. Yeah, And and also people in council bluffs, if you want to reach out to Dr. (laughs) Feel free to do so. Um, Yeah, doctor, what can I say? I I hope um, that uh, when we speak again, um, that uh, it won't be too far away, but then also. That you'll be able to fill the episode up with positive developments. Um that Absolutely. Would be. Absolutely.
1: Yes. I look forward to it. I will keep you up to date with when you can wrangle <laughs> when you can wrangle me down, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, as, as you know, I'm a bit of a dog of the bone uh, when it comes to trying to get, get back to you. But I, I will always sort of come back to you. If I don't hear from you, I'll be like, Dr. Beauchamp, remember me? Um, and everyone um, keeps saying,
1: you, yeah. when are you writing this book? And I'm like, you know what? I should just start voice recording every time I do anything and then just get someone to write it all out. And there you go. You have a book. <laughs> That's probably what I'm going to do.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely look forward to reading it. So, um, yeah, Dr. Boshot, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's always a pleasure. And I, I wish you sincerely all the very best. Um, and, Two. yeah, let's speak Two. again soon. Two. Thank you so Two much for
1: having me. Take care. Okay.
0: Two and a mic.